Good morning. How are you all doing today? Good, good. It is good to worship the Lord together. Amen. So thank you, Dave and the worship team for leading us. That's a huge blessing. I want to tell you guys a story. Uh, I want to say this was about seven or eight years ago. Uh, well, I should back up. I was born into a sports family. Okay, I didn't have a choice about this. I, I, I could have grown up loving opera, but I was born into a sports family, okay? And uh, in my family, it was understood that you follow baseball, and it was understood that you love both the Angels and the Dodgers. Now, to some of you, that is bizarre, right? But they're in different leagues, and we followed both of them. Now, I lived in Orange County, so whenever I went to games as a kid, it was always Angel Games. It was such a rare treat to go to a Dodger game, but we went to Angel Games all the time. And if you know anything about the history of the California Anaheim Angels of Los Angeles, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know that historically they have been terrible. They're always terrible. A good year for them is mediocre, and that's kind of what we lived with. And so I grew up with Angels gear on all the time and all that kind of stuff and, and lived for the day when someday God would prove he existed <laughs> by supporting the Angels far enough to get them to a World Series. I mean, after all, they were named after his heavenly beings, right? <laughs> you would think he would give them a little shove. And then I saw that movie Angels in the Outfield and I'm like, yes, this could happen, right? And so in 2002, all of the planets aligned and all the stars aligned and this amazing thing happened. This relatively mediocre Angels team actually got hot at the right time. They made the wild card and they won the wild card and then they won their division. And they, they went all the way to the World Series and I bought tickets to every game I could go to. Now, you asked, did you have the money for the tickets? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> but, but I said, this is the first time in my life this has ever happened, and it's probably going to be the last. As it turns out, it may be true. So <laughs> in 2002, the Angels win the World Series, and I got to go to the games, and it was so awesome, and it was so exciting. And so now you have the background. Fast forward a few years. Uh, my brother and I decided to take our sons to spring training. And so we went to Arizona for a week to spring training where we could see both of our teams, the Angels and the Dodgers, right? So we brought our Dodgers gear, we brought our Angels gear, and we would go to a different game each day and watch our teams. And so one day, uh, we were all dressed and ready to go to the Angel game, and my nephew said, hey, there's a pawn shop down the street near where we're staying. I love pawn shops. Do you think we could stop in this pawn shop and just look around? So we said, sure. We left a little bit early for the game. We went to this pawn shop, and we get to the pawn shop, and we're all decked out in Angel's gear. And the guy goes, oh, Angel fans, right? I said, oh, you're a genius, right? And, and he goes, I have something you might like. I go, really? What is it? He goes, it's not here. I go, well, why are you telling me then? He goes, I'm going to bring it tomorrow. Are you guys still going to be in town? I'll bring it tomorrow. You're going to love it. I said, okay, bring it tomorrow. We came back tomorrow. We go, hey, we're here to see that thing, whatever it is. He goes, I looked for it and I couldn't find it, so it must be in my storage. So I'm going to bring it tomorrow. So come in tomorrow and you can see it. So I came in the next day and that was our last day there. So we was really hoping he would have whatever this 
trinket was. And he goes, I found it. And he, he goes in the back and he pulls out this thing and he goes to the counter and he unrolls on the counter an oil painting of the 2002 world champion angels signed by every single player on the team. And, and, and I'm looking at this like, oh my God, I think they have one of these in heaven. This is amazing. <laughs> and, and, and he's explaining to me about what it is. And, and I said, oh my gosh, how much is this? Not that I would have any chance to ever buy it. And he goes, obviously, you care way more about this. I couldn't care less about the angels. You can have it. Wow. Yeah. And he gave it to me. And since then, it has been hanging in my office. Let me show you. So this is my collectible pride and joy. Isn't that cool? So it has a signature from every player and coach that was on that team. And so I looked into it, and I, and I decided to check it out to find out what I really had. And... The cowboy is Gene Autry, who was the former owner of the Angels. So uh, I found the artist online, and I called his studio, and I got him. And I said, tell me about this painting. He said, well, usually when a team wins the World Series, the owner will have like special Rolex watches made for all the players or something like that that only the players get. But instead, they commissioned this painting. Only the players got this painting. So every one of the players got the painting and they had them all sign it. The players, the general manager, the manager, and the coaches all got this and nobody else on planet Earth has one of these except Doug. <laughs> Is that the coolest thing? And so I asked the guy, I said, look, I don't mean to be rude and I'm not planning to sell it, but what is that thing worth? And he goes, he goes nobody knows because, you know, who would sell it? So, so nobody, nobody knows, like where it came from, which player pawned it at some point, but uh, it's hanging in my office, which is guarded by Rottweilers, if you know, <laughs> don't go in there. So, <laughs> but that is my treasure story, where I, I absolutely stumbled across something that turned out to be the most incredible thing to me that I could possibly find. And I thought that was an awesome story until I read the story of a guy named Peter Watling. And Peter Watling was a tenant farmer, 1992. This guy lives in England in Suffolk County, and he is a tenant farmer, which means that he basically rents a piece of land from the county so that he can farm, so he can feed his family. He's a poor man, and he works this farm. And one day, he gets home after a day of working in the field, and he realizes, I lost my hammer. It fell out of my tool belt. So he goes back, but now it's dark and the, and the crops are tall and he can't find where the hammer is. So the next day he goes and gets a friend of his, a guy by the name of Eric Laws. And Eric is a retired guy who's a neighbor who's into uh, metal detecting. So he has a metal detector. So he says, bring your metal detector. We got to find my hammer because if we don't find that hammer and then I run over this hammer with a harvester, it's going to do serious damage. So we got to find this hammer. So they go out with the metal detector and they start searching and the metal detector starts sounding and they figure they found the hammer, but there's no hammer. But there's a piece of a silver spoon sticking out of the ground and they dig it out and they pull out a spoon that looks kind of old and they do some more digging and they find some coins 
And they keep digging, and they find a couple of silver statues and some more gold coins. And now they realize, I think we have just come upon some buried treasure. And then uh, Peter says, you know, uh, the law says that whenever you find buried treasure, you have to inform the authorities. What would you do? (laughs) Right? So they informed the authorities. The next day, the authorities came in and looked at it. They brought in archaeologists. They made an archaeological dig out of it. And they dug up that day over uh, 14,000 Roman coins, gold, silver, and bronze, dating back 1,500 years. And it was the largest um, find of any Roman treasure dating back that long in the history of the world. There was statues and there was silverware and all this kind of stuff, but the coins were the big thing. And so they thought, oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing in the world. We are rich. And then they were informed that the law says whenever anything is determined to be buried treasure, it belongs to the state. And they were sad. (laughs) And then they discovered that the law says the state must pay you the appraised value of the treasure. And they were happy. When the treasure was appraised at $4.5 million. (laughs) And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, did they ever find the hammer? (laughs) Yes, they found the hammer and not needing a hammer anymore, being retired, he donates the hammer along with the treasure to the British Museum where you can go see it today. It's called the Hoxney Hoard and it is the, it is the biggest treasure ever found of, um, Roman, from Roman times. So I tell you those two stories to say it's not impossible to, to stumble upon something that is absolutely valuable. And... And it makes me think, did you ever have one of those daydreams where you, you drove past a sign that said lottery, 160 million, and you thought, what would I do? You never had that? So that's just me that does that? You guys don't do that? And, or, or what if I was like Jed Clampett and I shot a coon and ended up striking oil and next thing I knew I was rich, right? Like, like I think... All of us have this sort of tendency in us to go, man, what if I came across something that just changed my life and made me rich forever? Wouldn't that be incredible? Wouldn't that be awesome? And I think Jesus understood that our minds work that way because he told stories about people who found buried treasure. And in the first century, in the Middle East, people understood about buried treasure because you didn't have banks as we know them then, right? And so the way that you kept your wealth was you invested your wealth in something that was rather small but very valuable like coins or gems or jewelry of some sort. And then you kept it yourself because you're the only one who could keep it safe. And that often meant that you found a secret spot and buried it in the ground. And so just as you and I drive past lottery signs and think, wow, wouldn't it be great? People in that day thought about what would happen if I came across buried treasure. So when Jesus started to talk to them about buried treasure, I bet their ears perked up, perked up and they began to say, wow, this is a great story. And he had them. But before we get into Jesus' story of buried treasure, let me remind you all about what we're doing here. We are teaching through some of the parables of Jesus. What's a parable, you ask? Thank you for asking. A parable... <laughs> 
is a story that is designed to come alongside a truth to illustrate that truth. It's a simple story, kind of like a fable, only shorter. And it shares or illustrates some truth that the teacher is trying to illustrate. It comes from the Greek word, which means to come alongside. So it's a story that comes alongside the truth so you can see the truth more clearly. That's what a parable is. And Jesus loved to teach in parables. And in, by the time we get to Matthew 13, which is where we were last week, it's where we're going to be this week. So if you have your Bibles, get to Matthew. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And go to Matthew chapter 13 because by the time you get to Matthew chapter 13, there's this shift that is taking place in the way Jesus teaches. If you read the first half of the book of Matthew and look at Jesus' teaching, you're going to find that most of his teaching is very straightforward. He just comes out and says what he has to say. And it was the fact that he came out and said what he had to say that often got him in so much trouble with the authorities. So by the time you get to chapter 13, there's this shift that takes place in the way Jesus teaches through most of the rest of Matthew. From this point on, he teaches almost entirely by using parables. And we talked about this a little bit last week. Um, parables are these stories that illustrate this truth, and Jesus uses them because by using them, he can teach truth that people will understand but not everybody will understand. He can teach these truths and not necessarily be held accountable by the court, if you will, for what he's teaching. If he comes out and says, I am the son of God, then he's gonna get in trouble for blasphemy even though it's not blasphemous. But if he tells a story that shows you that he's the son of God, he can illustrate the same truth and then if he gets called on it, he says, I was just telling a story. And so Jesus starts to teach in these parables, and he says, it's so that some of you will understand and others of you will not understand, and that's why I'm teaching in parables. And so we're going to get to chapter 13 of Matthew, and we're going to look again, beginning in verse 44, Matthew 13, 44, and we're going to pick it up there, and we're going to look at these two very short little parables. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, we're getting into what theologians call the kingdom parables. And the reason they're called the kingdom parables is because they all begin with this line. The kingdom of heaven is like, and then fill in the blank. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. The kingdom of heaven is like a field. The kingdom of heaven, and he, and he gives us these stories of the kingdom of heaven. And this is the beginning of these parables of the kingdom of heaven. And so they begin with the kingdom of heaven is like. So if we're gonna go any further and we're gonna actually understand what the kingdom of heaven is like, we should probably start by defining what is meant by the kingdom of heaven. What is he talking about when he says the kingdom of heaven? Now, there's obviously a literal understanding of the kingdom of heaven, which is that there really is a literal place where people spend eternity with God. That's called heaven. And that's called the kingdom of heaven. It's referred to in scripture again and again and again that when believers 
come to the time of their death that they, they actually pass into the kingdom of heaven and they spend eternity with God in the kingdom of heaven. It's a literal place. But there's another meaning to the kingdom of heaven that is also rampant throughout the scriptures. Um, it ref- refers to a kingdom is wherever a king reigns, right? How do you know the boundaries of a kingdom? It's wherever the, the king has the authority, wherever the king reigns. And in ancient times, you would see that there would be this kingdom here, and this other kingdom would come and overpower them and take away their kingdom, and the kingdoms would expand and shrink. The kingdom is that area in which the king reigns, where the king has authority. And so think about this. The Lord's Prayer, which we've all heard probably many times, where he's teaching us a a pattern of prayer and he teaches us how to pray. And one of the lines is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Asking for God's kingdom to take place on earth. How does God's kingdom take place on earth? Well, the kingdom is wherever the king reigns. Where does the king reign? In the hearts of believers, right? So if he reigns in our hearts, we are part of his kingdom kingdom, even before we ever make it to that place called heaven. So here on earth, the kingdom of heaven is defined not by geographical boundaries, it's defined by the hearts of people. And so people who come under the authority of the king, people who recognize the reign of the king, people who follow the direction and the lead of the king, those are people who are living in the kingdom. So When these parables talk about the kingdom of heaven, they're talking about both aspects of the kingdom. Both of those things are in play. It's both something I will enter into and it's something that enters into me, kingdom of heaven. So what is the kingdom of heaven like? Jesus says, well, it's like this farmer who lost his hammer and he goes back looking for it, and when he's going through the field, he finds this unbelievable treasure. And when he realizes the value of the treasure, he reburies it, covers it all back up, stomps it down, and covers it with leaves so that nobody will see where it was. And then he goes home and sells everything he has. I mean everything at a discount rate. You talk about an estate sale. He's just bringing people in. You, you take this, you take this, you take this. He's getting rid of everything he has so that he can put together enough money to go to the owner of the field, he buys the field, and once he buys the field, he now owns the treasure. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is just like that. It's like that farmer. And if you don't like that story, if you can't relate to that story, not really a farmer, you're more a business person, he tells a business story. He says, there's also a guy who's a merchant, and this merchant deals in jewels, and he's always on the lookout for something precious and valuable. And when he's shopping through the shops one day in this little village, he comes across this place who has this pearl for sale that is the most spectacular thing he has ever seen. It is the most beautiful, the most valuable, the most exquisite pearl he's ever laid his eyes on. And seeing the pearl, he runs home, sells everything that he has, liquidates all of his inventory, sells his shop, sells everything to get enough money, comes back and buys the pearl, and now he has the pearl that is known forevermore as the pearl of great price. And his life has changed forever. Now, Jesus had just finished telling the parable of the wheat and the weeds that we talked about last week, right? And he made it clear in that parable that there are two kingdoms in conflict in this world, right? 
the kingdom of heaven, ruled by the king of kings, and the kingdom of this world, which is ruled by the devil himself. So what's the point? Remember, when we look at these parables, we're always supposed to ask the question, what is the point? What is Jesus trying to say? I think Jesus, in a way, is asking, oh my goodness, do you realize what is being offered to you when the kingdom of heaven is presented to you as a gift from God? Do you understand the unbelievable value of the kingdom of heaven? Do you understand what an amazing thing it is that the king of kings and lord of lords would set his eyes on you and would say, I want to have a personal relationship with you and I will pay the price for all of your sins. I will set you free from the bondage of sin and death. I will give you eternal life and and life abundantly and I will bring you into a relationship with me that will give you meaning and value forever and ever and ever and ever, do you realize what an amazing value that is that God offers us when he offers us the kingdom of heaven? See, it breaks my heart to realize how many of us, maybe even having grown up in church, maybe you don't even remember your first day in church. Maybe they changed your diapers in the church nursery. And you could count... A million times you've heard the story of David and Goliath and all the times you've heard about Daniel in the lion's den and all the many times that you've taken the Lord's Supper and all the many times you've looked at the cross and realized the gospel message, what it means that Jesus died for you. And I just want to say, especially to those of us who've been walking with Jesus for a long time, it is dangerous for us that sometimes we can begin to take for granted the kingdom of heaven. And we can begin to just go, oh, Jesus died for me. What else is on the agenda today? It's an unbelievable thing. It's like people tell me, when you live, I was born in Southern California, down by the beach in Orange County. Now, now people who've moved here from the Midwest, they have a completely different view of Southern California than I do. Like, they're like, oh my goodness, it is 75 degrees in November. That's incredible. I'm like, what are you talking about incredible? I know people who don't own any long pants. They live in California, shorts, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and take it for granted. But when you have been in Michigan in December, you know that California is amazing, right? (laughs) You know, and, and when, when you have spent a winter in the Rust Belt where you don't see the sun for weeks at a time, but you can go in December or January down to Huntington Beach and stand there and look at the sun setting beyond the pier in a beautiful warm evening, and you go, eh, it's another sunset. Seen a lot of those. But man, when you're not from here, you, you go, wow, this is special. This is amazing. This is why people come here on vacation. Are you one of the people with a bumper sticker that says, welcome to California, now go home? Yeah. yeah? That's why they come here, you guys. Because it's incredible. We don't remember how incredible it is because we're used to being here. And I think this could happen to us in the church. That we are literally accustomed to being saved by grace. We're literally comfortable with the idea 
that Jesus pulled us out of the muck and mire, paid the price for our sins, and gives us eternal life. We're used to the fact that the Holy Spirit comforts us. We're used to the fact that the Holy Spirit guides us. We're used to the fact that we could pick up the Bible and read it, and it's alive to us. And we're comfortable with it because we're used to it. Oh, friends, in the midst of our temporary struggles, have we lost sight of the beauty of the gospel and the kingdom of God? Have you started to take for granted what it is to have a personal relationship with God himself? To those of us who have become comfortable with the kingdom, Jesus is reminding us how awesome it is and how desperately we need to understand the worth of the kingdom. Remember Mark chapter 10, there's this uh, rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. You've, you've probably heard this story. You can mark it in your notes. You don't have to turn there. There's a rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus. Listen, this guy's got it made. He is wealthy, he is powerful, and he is young. He's got all these things going for him. His whole life's ahead of him, and this life is laid out. It is done. He is good. He doesn't worry about anything in this life. And he comes to Jesus with all of his comfort and all of his ease, and he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus, looking at his heart and knowing what is standing between him and God is his love for the things of the world, he says, you're going to have to go and sell everything and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And then he says this, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then it's such a sad scene, as the scripture says, and he went away grieving because he owned so much. He owned so much that it was too much to walk away from for a promise of the kingdom of heaven. See, the kingdom of heaven is worth so much more than you or I could ever imagine. And so let me just ask you this morning if maybe you've lost sight of that in the traffic and the, and the work hassles and raising your families and all the things that you're trying to do, have you lost sight of how amazing it is to be in the kingdom of God? Do you think of the kingdom of God in terms of what you lose or what you gain? The rich young ruler said, I'm just, it's going to cost too much. I, I have to lose too much. Guys, let me just tell you something. I heard this recently. There will be no losers in heaven. There will be no losers in heaven. Let me tell you what I mean. Some of you are like, really? That's not good news for me. I'm not happy with that. <laughs> Listen, that's not what I'm saying. What it means is when you're in heaven and you look around Everyone there will have gained. Everyone there is a gainer. There is nobody there who's a loser. There is nobody who is in heaven looking at the splendor of the glory of God and all that he provides for us in heaven. There is nobody who is there going, yeah, but I really miss my place in Malibu. <laughs> There's nobody doing that because everybody in heaven gains. I want you to take your Bibles, leave your finger there in Matthew and go to Philippians, which is to the right about, I don't know, 10 books. Go to the book of Philippians. After Ephesians, you come to Philippians and go to Philippians chapter three. And there's this guy named Paul who writes this letter to the Philippians and um, Paul is an apostle by this time, but he had a previous life and in his previous life, he was a lot like that rich young ruler. He was young, he was educated, he was from the right family, he had wealth, he had authority, he had establishment, he had done all the things that he needed to do at a young age so that his life was set the rest of the way. And here's what he says, we're, we're in Philippians chapter three, 
uh, beginning in verse 4. Listen to Paul. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day, big deal to Jews, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He, he's basically saying, look, I had it all and I count all of that to be rubbish. Not that it's bad, not that it's worthless, not that people wouldn't like to have it. It's all really nice stuff until you compare it to the glory of Jesus himself. Until you compare it to the riches of an eternity in heaven, a life of 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years in which people respect you and you live comfortably and you have what you want and you have authority and you're, you live a life of ease, that 80 years compared to the, I don't know, 100 trillion years living in your father's mansion in heaven. <laughs> Do you understand the difference here? It's not about what you lose, it's about what you gain. And so if you're sitting there going, yeah, when I get to heaven, man, I hope they have Corvettes because I always want a Corvette. Shut up! <laughs> you don't get it. And Jesus is going, hey guys, I'm afraid you don't get it. I'm afraid you might have lost track of that which is really so valuable. There was a great um, man of God named Jim Elliott. In 1956, Jim Elliott and four other men, missionaries down into South America, trying to reach a tribe of people that had never been reached before. And, and they went down, they had a whole process of, of introducing themselves until finally they landed their plane on the beach and these five men got out of their plane. And as they walked up the beach, these 10 uh, warriors from the tribe came out to greet them and slaughtered all five of them right there on the beach. And later, Jim Elliott's journal was discovered and became public. And there at the top of the page, he scratched these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Perspective. The kingdom is worth more than anyone could ever imagine. And let's be honest. If people don't know about the treasure, if people don't know about the pearl, they should look at our lives and say, you look ridiculous. What are you doing? What are you doing? To someone who doesn't know about the treasure, they should think you're a moron based on the way that you live. These guys in the stories, they, they, you know, it's just a two-line story, right? Guy finds a treasure, goes back and sells everything, buys the field, then he has the treasure, hooray. But that wouldn't be how it would have actually unfolded, would it? 
He finds the treasure, buries it. Now he has to keep his mouth shut about that. Some of you would fail right there. <laughs> just knowing some great secret and you can't tell, like you'd just be out of it right there. Why? Because if anybody else finds out there's treasure in the field, tomorrow there will be no treasure in the field, right? So he's got to keep his mouth shut. Now he goes home to his friends and family and he starts selling everything. He's selling everything at a discount. He's just liquidating as fast as he can, getting rid of everything. And his friends and his family are going, dude, what is wrong with you? What's going on? Why are you doing this? He goes, just cause, right? <laughs> Until finally they schedule an intervention and they all gather in the living room and they go, listen, we need to talk to you. Your behavior is insane. You're costing yourself money. And he goes, I know. Until he gets enough money. And he goes and he buys the field and he gets the treasure and he comes out with the treasure. Booyah! I got the treasure, right? That, that people look at him and go, that guy's insane. Same with the pearl guy. What do you mean you're closing your shop? What do you mean you're getting rid of all your stuff? What is wrong with you? And he's like, yeah, but there's this one pearl. And they're like, are you crazy? But he's got the pearl of great price. So their friends probably thought they were being ridiculous. You know what, guys? Our lives, if we really believe in the treasure, our lives ought to be utterly ridiculous to anybody from the outside looking in. When I started living for the treasure, I was a teenager. And I remember, at first, my parents thought it was cute. Oh, Doug discovered religion. He started going to church. But when they began to see my life being transformed in all of these ways, and, and all of a sudden the things I used to value, I didn't value so much, and the things that I had never valued before I was beginning to value, and I was beginning to live an entirely different lifestyle, I remember my dad, he thought, man, is this a cult? What is this thing? Like, have they got you? Like, what are you doing? You, you, you stopped doing some of the things that you used to really think were important. Why, why did you? And he didn't understand, and, and to my dad... It looked absolutely ridiculous. And my brother and I both met Jesus on the same day as teenagers. And, and we both began to just live these lives as if the treasure existed. And my parents, especially my dad, he just shook his head and he thought, man, I got to keep an eye on this. This worries me. I don't know what's going on with you. But later in life, after I've been walking with Jesus for some 20 years, I remember sitting at my dad's house at the dining room table and him looking across the table at me and saying, hey, what you have, I need. Tell me about how I can have what you have. And I remember praying with my dad that night for him to give his life to Christ. See, the treasure looks ridiculous. The, the, the life seeking the treasure looks ridiculous to those who've never seen the treasure. And I think it's a valid question for those of us who are followers of Christ to ask ourselves, does my life look ridiculous to anybody? Like if somebody was to sit down with Christy and me, maybe like a secular financial advisor, sit down, we open our books and say, yeah, this is how much we make, this is what we do with our money. Like, like would they say, oh, you're right on track, you're doing great? Or would they say, what, you give away how much? What are you doing? You could be earning, what, what are you? And I would go, ah, praise God. 
right? I must be getting it right. Because you know what? If your financial advisor understands the way you're handling your finances, then I'm thinking maybe you don't know about the treasure. If if your marriage counselor understands the way you're going about marriage and family, then maybe you're not going about marriage and family as somebody who's seen the treasure. I mean, these aspects of our lives, our our finances, our, our, our sexuality, our relationships, like do we put those things under the lordship of Jesus as if we're really in his kingdom? Or do we live as though that kingdom is just a theoretical thing that we talk about on Sundays? It's a good question. Does your life look ridiculous to those who have not seen the treasure? The guys in those stories look foolish to their families and friends until they walked out with the treasure. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're in Philippians still, just about two, three books to the left, you get to 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let me just read this to you. It begins in verse 12. I'm going to read about seven, eight verses. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. This is Paul again. He says, now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead... How does some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is also vain. Moreover, we're even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, even Christ has, been, has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then to those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If the treasure's not real, if if death hasn't actually been defeated for us, then we ought to be pitied because we're living our lives chasing a treasure we're never going to get. But if Christ is raised. And by the way, all of the historical evidence tells us Christ is raised. But even if the historical evidence didn't tell us that Christ was raised, every one of us who has actually given our life to Christ and experienced what it's like to have a personal relationship knows in the depths of our hearts that Christ is raised. Amen? And, and if Christ is raised, then the treasure is real. And if Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is worth waiting for, and it's worth a thousand lifetimes times a thousand lifetimes worth all that you could possibly gain for yourself on earth, then we ought to be living as if that's true. If he really is risen, then the treasure he offers, victory over sin and death, eternal life with Jesus, abundant life here on earth and forevermore. That treasure is worth more than anything this world has to offer. And by the way, science backs up the existence of this kingdom of God. History backs up the existence of this kingdom of heaven. The Bible teaches from beginning to end and cannot be refuted about the kingdom of heaven. It's true Jesus fulfilled countless prophecies from hundreds and even thousands of years before he was born on this earth. His tomb is actually 
empty and they never could explain it. The history, both secular and religious, tells of his crucifixion and what happened with the church after his resurrection. And in light of all of that, I gotta tell you, I'm willing to sell everything I have in exchange for the kingdom of heaven. Now, before we close, I should say that what I have just explained is not the only way to understand these parables. There's another way to look at these stories. What if the kingdom is not the treasure at all? What if we're the treasure? What if when Jesus talked about one who comes and gives everything to gain a treasure, what if the one who comes is Jesus and what if the treasure is us? What if, according to the gospel, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that cost him everything that we might have life in him? What if we're the treasure and Jesus is the one who finds the treasure? Jesus is the one who digs up the treasure. Jesus is the one who seeks for the pearl of great price. What if the treasure is us? Think about it. Already in this chapter, Jesus told a story in which the field represents what? The world. The field represents the world. What if, as he continues these stories, what if the field still represents the world? And what if the treasure that is in the field is the people who are living in the world? What if that's the meaning here too? Maybe these stories are just a way of describing the gospel message that God wanted a relationship with us so much that he was willing to give whatever he had to give in order to gain us. And by the way, he gave his only begotten son. Jesus left the throne of heaven in the everlasting worship of angels for a cross to gain us. Rejected and scorned, beaten and mocked, Humiliated, he endured the cross, it says, despising the shame for what lay before him, us, a relationship with us. If that's what these stories mean, this should solve our self-esteem problems. Seriously, if, if you look at your life and you look at yourself in the mirror and you're just disappointed and you think, man, I'm not worth much. Jesus says, when I found you, I was willing to give up everything to gain you. And it's not because you had this incredible worth. It's because once I gained you, you had this incredible worth. He, he says, you have value. You are not an outsider. You're no longer one who is caught in sin and death. You are actually a child of the king. We sang songs about it this morning. What if that's what this means? You're a treasure worth giving everything up for. Who are you to Jesus? You're the precious, beautiful pearl. You're the... You're the unbelievable value that would be worth whatever it took to get. So, these stories could mean that. 
So which is it? Yes. I think if we, we don't know, we, we're, all we can do is interpret. I wish, I wish that when he got done with these stories, his disciples had said, hey, could you explain about the treasure and the pearl the way they said, explain about the weed and the weeds? But apparently they didn't because when he got to the end in verse 51 here in Matthew 13, he says, do you understand all that I've told you? And they said, yes. <laughs> and I don't know if that's because they really understood. I don't know if it's like so many of us, they thought they understood while not having a clue or if they didn't have a clue, but they weren't about to say so. I don't know. But when, they, when he said, do you understand? They said, yes, so he stopped teaching. I don't know if he was teaching the first story or the second interpretation, but I have a feeling if we could get him here and ask him, or we would say, is it, is it, that, is it that you're the treasure and we should, we should be willing to give everything up to have you? Or is it that we're the treasure and heaven has given everything to have us? I think he would say, yes. <laughs> Because remember what we said about parables? We, we talked about how do we interpret parables. Remember this? Um, I put a slide up. I said, first of all, uh, parables teach one primary point, right? Don't make them more complex than they are. They teach a point. Um, so let's don't get bogged down in the details. The point is the same either way. Here's the point of both these, of these stories. There is a treasure of incredible worth that outshines everything else the world has to offer. And that point is illustrated whether Jesus is a treasure or we're, and we're the finders of the treasure or whether we're the treasure and Jesus is the finder of the treasure. Number two, we said it's not an allegory. So we gotta be careful. We don't wanna go, oh, well, yeah, but it, I mean, what does a pearl represent and what does the merchant represent? We don't wanna go that far. We just wanna look to the point, right? And the point is very clear. The third thing was that parables don't stand alone. So what parables do is they come alongside, right? They come alongside of scriptural truth that is taught elsewhere in the scriptures. So we need to look and go, what, the, what does the scripture say about this? Does the scripture say that we are an incredible treasure that Jesus treasures so much that he was willing to lay down his life for us? Does the, or does the scripture teach that Jesus is such an unbelievable treasure and the kingdom of heaven is such an unbelievable offering that we should be blown away and be willing to let go of everything in order to have it. Which does it teach? Yes. It teaches both of those facts. So what do these parables mean? They mean that Jesus is such a great treasure that we would be foolish to let anything stand between us and him. And they mean that in the eyes of Jesus... We are such a great treasure that he was unwilling to let even our rebelliousness stand between us and him and to pay any price he had to pay to redeem us from sin and death. And so I close with this question. Are you letting something of lesser value stand between you and the kingdom of heaven? Is it your pride? Is it material things? Is it some sin that you just love and you can't imagine ever giving up? Is it, is it fear? Is it doubt? Is it rebelliousness? 
Is it some relationship that you're afraid to let some other relationship become more important than? Is there something, is there anything that you're allowing to stand between you and the full experience of the kingdom of heaven? Because Jesus was unwilling to let anything stand between himself and the treasure of you. That's what the kingdom of God is like, Jesus says. What kingdom are you living for? A question to ponder this week. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful to be reminded of the incredible value of what you offer us when you offer us the kingdom of heaven. We're so grateful to be reminded of the incredible value that you place on us, that you would in fact lay down your own life on a criminal's cross to pay the price to gain us back. And so, <laughs> whichever you meant back then, or maybe you meant both, we want to thank you for both of these scriptural truths and ask you to help us walk in the light of them, valuing your kingdom above all else because you have valued us above all else. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.